0: Letter Five Part One Of A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains by Isabella L. Bird Part One Of Letter Five Canyon, September the absence of a date shows my predicament. They have no newspaper. I have no almanac. The father is away for the day, and none of the others can help me, and they look contemptuously upon my desire for information on the subject. The monotony will come to an end to-morrow, for Chalmers offers to be my guide over the mountains to Estes Park, and has persuaded his wife, for once, to go for a frolic, and with much reluctance, many growls at the waste of time, and many apprehensions of danger and loss, she has consented to accompany him. My life has grown less dull from their having become more interesting to me, and as I have made myself agreeable. We are on fairly friendly terms. My first move in the direction of fraternizing was, however, snubbed. A few days ago, having finished my own work, I offered to wash up the plates, but Mrs. C., with a look which conveyed more than words. A curl of her nose, and a sneer in her twang, said, "'Guess you'll make more work, nor you'll do, those hands of yours!' Very brown and coarse they were. "'Ain't no good. Never done nothing, I guess.' Then to her awkward daughter, "'This woman says she'll wash up. (laughs) Ha! Ha! Look at her arms and hands!' This was the nearest approach to a laugh I have heard, and have never seen even a tendency towards a smile since then i have risen in their estimation by improving a lamp hawaiian fashion by putting a wisp of rug into a tin of fat they have actually condescended to sit up till the stars come out since another advance was made by means of the shell pattern quilt i am knitting for you there has been a tendency towards approving of it and a few days since the girl snatched it out of my hand saying i want this and apparently took it to the camp. This has resulted in my having a knitting-class with a woman, her married daughter, and a woman from the camp, as pupils. Then I have gained ground with the man by being able to catch and saddle a horse. I am often reminded of my favourite couplet, Beware of desperate steps, the darkest day, live till tomorrow, will have passed away. But, oh, what a hard, narrow life it is with which I am now in contact a narrow and unattractive religion which i believe still to be genuine and an intense but narrow patriotism are the only higher influences chalmers came from illinois nine years ago pronounced by the doctor to be far gone in consumption and in two years he was strong they are a queer family somewhere in the remote highlands i have seen such another its head is tall gaunt lean and ragged and has lost one eye On an English road one would think him a starving or a dangerous beggar. He is slightly intelligent, very opinionated, and wishes to be thought well informed, which he is not. He belongs to the straightest sect of reformed Presbyterians, psalm-singers, but exaggerates anything of bigotry and intolerance which may characterize them, and rejoices in truly merciless fashion over the excision of the philanthropic Mr. Stewart of Philadelphia, for worshipping with congregations which sing hymns. His great boast is that his ancestors were Scottish covenanters. He considers himself a proud theologian, and by the pine logs at night discourses to me on the mysteries of the eternal counsels of the divine decrees. Colorado, with its progress and its future, is also a constant theme. He hates England with a bitter personal hatred, and regards any allusions which I make to the progress of Victoria as a personal insult. He trusts to live to see the downfall of the British monarchy and the disintegration of the empire. He is very fond of talking, and asks me a great deal about my travels, but if I speak favorably of the climate or resources of any other country, he regards it as a slur on Colorado. They have one hundred and sixty acres of land, a squatter's claim, and an invaluable water-supply. He is a lumberer, and has a saw-mill of a very primitive kind. I notice that every day something goes wrong with it, and this is the case throughout. If he wants to haul timber down, one or other of the oxen cannot be found. Or if the timber is actually under way, a wheel or a part of the harness gives way, and the whole affair is at a standstill for days." The cabin is hardly a shelter, but is allowed to remain in ruins, because the foundation of a frame-house was once dug. A horse is always sure to be lame for want of a shoe-nail, or a saddle to be useless from a broken buckle, and the wagon and harness are a marvel of temporary shifts, patchings, and insecure linkings with strands of rope. Nothing is ever ready or whole when it is wanted. Yet Chalmers is a frugal, sober, hard-working man and he, his eldest son, and a hired man, rise early, going forth to their work and labour till the evening, and if they do not, late take rest, they truly eat the bread of carefulness. It is hardly surprising that nine years of persevering shiftlessness should have resulted in nothing but the ability to procure the bare necessities of life. Of Mrs. C. I can say less. She looks like one of the English poor women of our childhood, lean, clean, toothless, and speaks like some of them in a piping, discontented voice which seems to convey a personal reproach. All her waking hours are spent in a large sun-bonnet. She is never idle for one minute, is severe and hard, and despises everything but work. I think she suffers from her husband's shiftlessness. She always speaks of me as this or that woman. The family consists of a grown-up son— a shiftless, melancholy-looking youth, who possibly pines for a wider life, a girl of sixteen, a sour, repellent-looking creature, with as much manners as a pig, and three hard, unchildlike younger children. By the whole family all courtesy and gentleness of act or speech seem regarded as works of the flesh, if not of the devil. They knock over all one's things without apologizing or picking them up and when I thank them for anything, they look grimly amazed. I feel that they think it sinful that I do not work as hard as they do. I wish I could show them a more excellent way. This hard greed, and the exclusive pursuit of gain, with the indifference to all which does not aid in its acquisition, are eating up family love and life throughout the West. I write this reluctantly, and after a total experience of nearly two years in the United States— they seem to have no sunday clothes and few of any kind the sewing machine like most other things is out of order one comb serves the whole family mrs c is cleanly in her person and dress and the food though poor is clean work 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 is their day and their life they are thoroughly ungenial and have that air of suspicion in speaking of every one which is not unusual in the land of their ancestors. Thomas Chalmers is a man's ecclesiastical hero, in spite of his own severe Puritanism. Their livestock consists of two wretched horses, a fairly good broncho mare, a mule, four badly bred cows, four gaunt and famished-looking oxen, some swine of singularly active habits, and plenty of poultry. The old saddles are tied on with twine, one side of the bridle is a worn-out strap, and the other a rope. They wear boots, but never two of one pair, and never blacked, of course, but no stockings. They think it quite effeminate to sleep under a roof, except during the severest months of the year. There is a married daughter across the river, just the same hard, loveless, moral, hard-working being as her mother. Each morning, soon after seven— When I have swept the cabin, the family come in for worship. Chalmers wails a psalm, in every sense of the word wail, to the most doleful of dismal tunes. They read a chapter round, and he prays. If his prayer has something of the tone of the imprecatory psalms, he has high authority in his favor, and if there is a tinge of pharisaic thanksgiving— It is hardly surprising that he is grateful that he is not as other men are when he contemplates the general godlessness of the region. Sunday was a dreadful day. The family kept the commandment literally, and did no work. Worship was conducted twice, and was rather longer than usual. Chalmers does not allow of any books in his house but theological works, and two or three volumes of dull travels. So the mother and children slept nearly all day, The man attempted to read a well-worn copy of Boston's Fourfold State, but shortly fell asleep, and they only woke up for their meals. Friday and Saturday had been passably cool, with frosty nights, but on Saturday night it changed, and I have not felt anything like the heat of Sunday since I left New Zealand, though the mercury was not higher than ninety-one degrees. It was sickening, scorching, melting unbearable from the mere power of the sun's rays. It was an awful day, and seemed as if it would never come to an end. The cabin, with its mud roof under the shade of the trees, gave a little shelter, but it was occupied by the family, and I longed for solitude. I took the imitation of Christ, and strolled up the canyon among the withered, crackling leaves, in much dread of snakes and lay down on a rough table which some passing emigrant had left, and soon fell asleep. When I awoke, it was only noon. The sun looked wicked as it blazed like a white magnesium light. A large tree-snake, quite harmless, hung from the pine under which I had taken shelter, and looked as if it were going to drop upon me. I was covered with black flies. The air was full of a busy, noisy din of insects and snakes— locusts, wasps, flies, and grasshoppers were all rioting in the torrid heat. Would the sublime philosophy of Thomas a. Kempis? I wondered, have given way under this? All day I seemed to hear in mockery the clear laugh of the Hilo streams, and the drip of Kona showers, and to see, as in a mirage, the perpetual green of windward Hawaii. I was driven back to the cabin in the late afternoon and in the evening listened for two hours to abuse of my own country, and to sweeping condemnations of all religionists outside of the brotherhood of psalm-singers. It is jarring and painful, yet I would say of Chalmers, as Dr. Holland says of another. If ever I shall reach the home in heaven, for whose dear rest I humbly hope and pray, in the great company of the forgiven, I shall be sure to meet old Daniel Gray." The night came without coolness, but at daylight on Monday morning a fire was pleasant. You will now have some idea of my surroundings. It is a moral, hard, unloving, unlovely, unrelieved, unbeautified, grinding life. These people live in a discomfort and lack of ease and refinement, which seems only possible to people of British stock. A foreigner fills his cabin with ingenuities and elegancies, and a hawaiian or south sea islander makes his grass-house both pretty and tasteful add to my surroundings a mighty canyon impassable both above and below and walls of mountains with an opening some miles off to the vast prairie sea Beginning a footnote, i have not curtailed this description of the roughness of a colorado settler's life for with the exceptions of the disrepair and the puritanism It is a type of the hard, unornamented existence with which I came almost universally in contact during my subsequent residence in the territory. An English physician is settled about half a mile from here over a hill. He is spoken of as holding very extreme opinions. Chalmers rails at him for being a thick-skulled Englishman, for being fine, polished, etc., To say a man is polished here is to give him a very bad name. He accuses him also of holding views subversive of all morality. In spite of all this, I thought he might possess a map, and I induced Mrs. C. to walk over with me. She intended it as a formal morning call, but she wore the inevitable sunbonnet, and had her dress tied up as when washing. It was not till I reached the gate that I remembered that I was in my Hawaiian riding-dress, and that I still wore the spurs with which I had been trying a horse in the morning. The house was in a grass valley which opened from the tremendous canyon through which the river had cut its way. The foothills, with their terraces of flaming red rock, were glowing in the sunset, and a pure green sky arched tenderly over a soft evening scene. Used to the meanness and baldness of settlers' dwellings, I was delighted to see that in this distance the usual log cabin was only the lower floor of a small house, which bore a delightful resemblance to a Swiss chalet. It stood in a vegetable garden fertilized by an irrigating ditch, outside of which were a barn and cow-shed. A young Swiss girl was bringing the cow slowly home from the hill. An English woman, in a clean print dress, stood by the fence holding a baby, and a fine-looking Englishman in a striped Garibaldi shirt, and trousers of the same tucked into high boots, was shelling corn. As soon as Mrs. Hughes spoke, I felt she was truly a lady. And, oh, how refreshing her refined, courteous, graceful English manner was, as she invited us into the house. The entrance was low, through a log-porch festooned, and almost concealed by a wild cucumber. Inside, though plain and poor, the room looked a home, not like a squatter's cabin, An old tin was completely covered by a graceful clematis mixed with the streamers of Virginia creeper, and white muslin curtains, and above all two shelves of admirably chosen books, gave the room, almost, an air of elegance. Why do I write almost? It was an oasis. It was barely three weeks since I had left the communion of educated men and the first tones of the voices of my host and hostess made me feel as if I had been out of it for a year. Mrs. C. stayed an hour and a half, and then went home to the cows, when we launched upon a sea of congenial talk. They said they had not seen an educated lady for two years, and pressed me to go and visit them. I rode home on Dr. Hugh's horse after dark, to find neither fire nor light in the cabin. Mrs. C. had gone back saying, those English talk just like savages. I couldn't understand a word they said. I made a fire, and extemporized a light with some fat and a wick of rag, and Chalmers came in to discuss my visit, and to ask me a question concerning a matter which had roused the latent curiosity of the whole family. I had told him, he said, that I knew no one hereabouts, but his woman told him that Dr. H. and I spoke constantly of a Mrs. Grundy, whom we both knew and disliked and who was settled, as we said, not far off. He had never heard of her, he said, and he was the pioneer settler of the canyon, and there was a man up here from Longmount who said he was sure there was not a Mrs. Grundy in the district, unless it was a woman who went by two names. The wife and family had then come in, and I felt completely nonplussed. I longed to tell Chalmers that it was he and such as he, there or anywhere, with narrow hearts, bitter tongues, and harsh judgments, who were the true Mrs. Grundys, dwarfing individuality, checking lawful freedom of speech, and making men offenders for a word. But I forbore. How I extricated myself from the difficulty, deponent saith not. The rest of the evening has been spent in preparing to cross the mountains. Chalmers says he knows the way well and that we shall sleep to-morrow at the foot of Long's Peak. Mrs. Chalmers repents of having consented and conjures up doleful visions of what the family will come to when left headless and of disasters among the cows and hens. I could tell her that the eldest son and the hired man have plotted to close the sawmill and go on a hunting and fishing expedition, that the cows will stray, and that the individual spoken respectfully of Mr. Skunk, Will make havoc in the hen house. End of letter five, part one.